The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 17 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book industry through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Hoping medical science allows me to live 79 more years so I can read my Marvel 2099 comics in the proper year, I'm Adam. And like the human torch, always saying, it's clobbering time. Ah! Whoa, whoa, Michael, Johnny Storm just took a swipe at you for making a mockery of his battle cry over so many episodes. My eyebrows are smoking. You better watch out or you're going to have Stanley Ipkiss lighted up for a shot at you, too. Just to be safe, I uh, better find a guest to join the conversation in the event of your untimely demise. Uh, you there, riding a BMX bike in your Monster Squad denim crew jacket. What's your name? Uh, who, me? Oh. I'm, I'm Sean Robert. Well, tell me, Sean, did you read comics in the 90s? Uh, let me answer your question by revealing this. Wow, a bagged and boarded copy of Madman Adventures number one. You're hired, kid. Uh, hired for what exactly? Look, just grab a mic and let's talk comics. Uh, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> we have fun here. Sean and I, we have known each other for a while. We have podcasted together in many different capacities, but welcome to the show. Very happy to be on. Been listening since episode one and a big fan, so this is really cool. For people not familiar with your work, Sean, what can you tell about what you do on the internet? Uh, so mainly people probably know me from my website, brandedinthe80s.com talking about 80s pop culture from the perspective of a kid or a kid at heart, as I am. I also do a couple podcasts, a branded podcast and another movie podcast with my friends Paxson and my wife, Jamie, called The Cult Film Club, where we basically talk about mainly a lot of stuff from the 80s. Yeah, it's a great show. You guys should definitely check it out. Only monthly, so you get to savor it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Sean, we know you love movies, but we're here to talk about comics, so why don't you tell us your origin story? Well, uh, I was born in 77. I feel like I got in right at a good time in pop culture history. By the time I was three, I was inundated with a lot of comic book stuff, even though I wasn't reading yet. But there was like the Incredible Hulk TV show and the Amazing Spider-Man live action show and skits in the Electric Company and stuff like that. Somewhere, I can't remember, it was before the Batman 89 movie, but somewhere I got introduced to the 66 Batman show as well. So there was a lot of like TV watching stuff and cartoons in the 80s. Spider-Man and his amazing friends and stuff like that. So I, I definitely had a, a bent toward comic book 
characters. But it wasn't until around 1987 where I really started actively like picking up my own comics and getting into the actual collecting side of comic books and stuff like that. I was one of those kids that would have a hobby or a collection or whatever and then sell it or trade it off to friends to like bump into a brand new collection. I was always kind of on the move for something new. And for a while I was into baseball cards and I just got to this point where I was like, I was just kind of done with baseball cards. So I sold my pride and joy, which was a set of the 1987 tops wood bordered cards to a baseball card shop. And I took that money and I was with my mom at a grocery store and I was just like looking for something to dump that money into. And they didn't have a spinner rack, but they did have a big section of comic books off in the corner. And a couple of X-Men related issues caught my eye and... I think I bought, was it, uh, X-Men 242 and Wolverine number four. And I was just off to the races, just got addicted. And then every waking moment from 1987 to probably about 1996, it was pretty much all my money was spent on comic books. Wow. So who were some of your favorites at the time? What were the books that caught your attention? Obviously the X-Men Wolverine at the beginning, but who did you start discovering as the 90s rolled around? Yeah, as as, as the stuff started booming and after the Batman 89 movie and stuff like that, um, I, I branched out into some of the other Marvel stuff. I, I never really got into DC. I wanted to. I loved the Batman movie. But for some reason, I felt like uh, there wasn't a good uh, entry point into the DC comics. For some reason, every time I would pick up an issue of Batman in the store or whatever, I just always felt like I was lost in the middle of a, of a story or something. But I, you know, I, I definitely picked up a lot of uh, Amazing Spider-Man and the Spider-Man books. And then I just kind of got on the whole hype train of like number ones and new stuff. And so like when they were introducing stuff like Darkhawk and Sleepwalker and stuff like that, I was like, I always wanted to get in on the ground floor. So I would start collecting those for a number of issues. But I also really got into like independent comics fairly quickly. Marvel was my bread and butter, but I was lucky to go to a, there was a comic book store that I went to where the owners were really good about recommending books and like introducing you to stuff like if I, if I had just enough money for my pull list that week which is marvel stuff or whatever but he thought i would be interested in something sometimes he would just throw in a book like an issue of poison elves or madman or something like that so i started drifting off into a lot of the independent stuff in the 90s i was a big fan of stuff like strangers in paradise a lot of the offbeat stuff that like image would put out that wasn't like sort of their main superhero stuff. Like they started printing Bone for a while, and that's how I got into uh, Jeff Smith's stuff and Evan Dorkin, uh, Milk and Cheese, a lot of the slave labor graphics stuff, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, stuff like that. So pretty much anything that was offbeat and weird and kind of kooky, uh, I kind of dipped my toes into in that time. Now, Chad, I know you recently had a pretty cool experience reclaiming some of your old comics. Is that right? Yeah. So like I want to do, I get to these points where either I run out of money or things happen and I just kind of get burnt out or whatever. And there was there was a time like around when Chris Claremont left the X-Men when I kind of got bummed out and I took a break from comics for a couple of years and then I just kind of concentrated on some of the independent titles, but I basically got out of comics. And when I got out of it, I wanted to like get rid of it. Like I just didn't want it hanging around. So I traded off almost everything I had to a couple of different friends and 20 years went by and I super regretted giving up huge swaths of my collection. And one of my friends was super nice and I had traded all my, uh, my uncanny X-Men run to him, which was like 120. 20-ish odd issues or whatever and he had just had them stored in a box and at one point he was like i don't want to carry these around from apartment to apartment to house anymore so he called me up and asked me if i just wanted to take them back and that was like the best thing that could possibly ever happen because within that range was 
the first Uncanny X-Men comic I had ever bought, which is what got me kicked off into comic collecting in general. And I don't have a lot of stuff from like the 80s from when I was growing up. Like all my stuff got purged in moves or my parents threw away or whatever. So getting a chance to like reclaim that actual first issue of a comic book that I that I bought myself with my own money. And that was that was a pretty big deal. So I love that story. I mean, that is so cool. I do, too, because it reminds me of me as a kid. Remember, like when we played Pogs and stuff like that, and you'd have to like trade your Pog if you lost them. I was so furious every time I lost one of those things, I would try to find a way to win them back. And it was the same thing with comics like or action figures when I went to college my mother gave away like all of my batmans to my younger cousins and recently partial thanks to adam in getting me the catwoman from batman returns i've been on this exploration if you will to try to find all of the batman action figures i had from like the 89 series from kenner as well as the batman returns that I can reclaim those still in packaging. And I'm like, I've been on the hunt for them for a few months now. And I haven't told Adam this yet. This is this is breaking news. Once I'm able to find the ones that I have, I will be able to share this array of stuff that I'm like reclaiming my childhood. And that's kind of what we talk about when we're doing this show is a lot of it is going back to our roots and reclaiming those memories and those feelings. And what you said is very, very true for a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, if we want somebody who dabbles in such things, I think you dive into such things, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> so you are more than appropriate to be with us. So we think it's time we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. Okay, so real quick here, this is kind of a a fun little tweet that I put out on our social media just before we started recording. I found an ad that was in uh, one of the Wizard specials we're going to be covering in the future, and in there, it was a collage, essentially, of very monumental Marvel Comics covers, and it had the question, do you remember your first Marvel? And so I threw that out to social media just to find out what everybody's first Marvel comic was. And, you know, I was really surprised to find, you know, amongst, like, uh, some Avengers and a Spider-Man here and there, the majority of people started out by collecting G.I. Joe comics. That was the first comic book they ever bought from Marvel. Really? I wonder. Yeah. I mean, maybe because of the animated series in the 80s, I guess? Yeah, well, and also, from my understanding, is when the show first launched, they actually had commercials for the comic book. And I have an assumption here, Sean, that you've uh, done some research into this at some point. Well, there was this shift in marketing, cartoons, toys, and everything, where, like, in the 70s, it was a lot of stuff had to be separated. Like, if you had a cartoon, you really weren't allowed to make merch merchandise and toys based on it they didn't want the cartoon to be basically a 30-minute commercial and something happened with he-man where reagan had lifted some fcc guidelines or whatever and they were they could have a toy line launch at the same time as a cartoon and yada yada and when gi joe came out they wanted to go one step further. And so like the toys, the cartoon and the comics were all created in tandem. Mm. And it was basically so that one would advertise for the other. And, you know, like it didn't matter where you were, if you were at home watching TV or if you were in the grocery store, seeing a comic book or in the toy store, like everything pointed to each other and you would have this massive like merch push. 
So yeah, when the comics came out, Sunbow had animated commercials that looked exactly like the cartoon series, but talking about the latest issue of the the G.I. Joe comic. It was it was pretty wild, actually. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And so Sean and I recently did a, a trade, and uh, we shared some vintage items back and forth, but one of the things I ended up with was a giant stack of vintage comics from the 80s based on so many popular cartoons and movies, and I got several issues of the G.I. Joe comic comic in that so i was like oh that's awesome thinking about gi joe for a minute because i was an avid fan of the show as well as collector of the action figures i'm just going to pose a fun question what was your favorite gi joe action figure that you owned as a kid for me i'll say right off the bat it was dial tone he's probably not a fan favorite for a lot of people but there's something about his wicked backpack that had that cool com link that would come around the side yes that was pretty cool i did like that the beret and everything and his sweet little mustache i don't know there's something about that figure it just it just hit me on all levels i like that figure too but i my favorite i had sergeant slaughter oh my favorite love that figure just had to put that out there adam what about you did you collect gi joe figures as a kid i did so my buddy eric had a gigantic collection like all the bases and all the vehicles and like he had a jacuzzi in his backyard and so what we would do is set it up like this island jungle adventure because we lived in southern california we had palm trees and all these tropical plants in the backyard and so we would literally bring out all his toys and play with them in the jacuzzi like you know storm shadow fighting in a waterfall you know and all this stuff so it was super fun so i would mostly played with his gi joe figures but i had a handful and for some reason my favorite was a guy named voltar who was oh, one yeah. of the iron grenadiers he was all purple he had this gold helmet with this eyepiece on it like a vulture pet and i just thought he was so cool <laughs> that's pretty funny speaking of favorites though sean what are your favorites came up in the magic words section here uh, for this issue so sean why don't you read that letter for us all right dear wizard press I am a member of the Sleepwalker fan club. I recently noticed your infrequent use of non-hot characters and would like to ask your magazine to put a certain alien with a maroon hood on the cover. Greg Mitchell, Arkansas. And here's Wizard's response. We pause for a moment to allow the various snickers and pockets of laughter to die down concerning the Sleepwalker fan club thing. Okay, as for your proposed Sleepwalker cover, we'll take it into consideration. Snicker. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Sleepwalker fans out there. I love that there was an actual fan club. I wonder if that was a Marvel thing or if it was just a bunch of kids that got together and did this themselves. It's literally Greg and his friend Brad, I promise you. It's just two of them. You only need two to make a club. (laughs) I did it many times in my youth. But coming up next, speaking of my friend Eric, he very well could have been the one to write this letter. This is from Alistair Hodges of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Dear Wizard, what happened to Super Pro? I bought the first issue because it was billed as a, quote, collector's item. And now I see that it doesn't even appear in your price guide. Does this mean that Marvel's newest superhero sensation is worth nothing? Wizard's response, yep. (laughs) And I remember my friend Eric read all the G.I. Joes. He was a big sports guy, too. And he went to his house one day, and he had this Super Pro number one with this painted cover of this guy flying towards, you know, the reader. And I was like, what is Super Pro? There was a miniseries, and then they did an ongoing. So I have issue number one of the ongoing series. Either way, not worth much. I remember Super Pro, and it, like, popped up, and I was like... What is this? I feel like it was one of those things, like, they had that show Pro Stars, and it was, like, Marvel's attempt to, like, 
make a super athlete kind of a thing or something. I don't know. And, well, was, and, and he was fully endorsed by the NFL. I mean, it was a literal NFL tie-in character. Yeah. Being such a nerdy kid that I was, like, I, I was super into, like, fantasy and sci-fi movies and comic books and all this stuff. And, like, the idea of something, like, jock-related or football-related, like, mixing in with my – it just felt so wrong. <laughs> it felt like like there was spies from the jocks in the school like infiltrating the comic book store <laughs> I hung out with on the weekends when I saw that issue. I was just like, no. I totally agree. And it's the same. I'm like, why are there baseball card, football card, basketball card ads in my comics? And why is Roger Clemens, the rocket, always in a two-page spread in the middle of my Marvel comics? It just, yeah, it, it always upset me. I was just like, I do not know what's going on here. <sighs> See, I did like sports. Like, I'm a huge football fan and growing up I, I liked baseball and I think the whole point of it was to try to draw in those types of readers like oh look we got an athlete we're not just doing Superman and Batman and it just didn't land if you were going to read a comic book you were going to read a comic book for something outside of your purview of being an athlete or whatever yeah, it's like, look, we know the social order. We know how things work. We're going to stay in our little nerd pocket over here, and you go over there, and you do your sports. We get it. And there's some, there's going to be some crossover, surely, but <laughs> generally speaking, we're reading comics because we're not terribly athletic, and we want to live in a fantasy world. Fair point. <laughs> but uh, speaking of these fantastical worlds, Michael, it's time for... The Wave Riders Wayback Machine. <laughs> January of 1993. So, when I saw this list, I can see why all of them came out in January, because <laughs> for the most part, they're not really setting the world on fire, but they did all have a significant impact. The first movie, which dropped on January 8th, is the original Leprechaun. And I remember this movie mostly because the Wayne's World reference of yes. I'm the leprechaun! I'm the leprechaun! And Garth was terrified by it. Must and then I would just run away. Where are you going to run to? Going to run to Ireland? Oh. <laughs> it always freaked me out. And then the prosthetics of the leprechaun in the trailers and the commercials were always pretty scary for me as a kid and i was like i don't want to see that movie i don't like leprechauns to begin with and that's even scary well, and michael do you know who was under the makeup no who was under the makeup well none other than warwick davis yes you know Warwick really? davis from willow yes of course he's my wow. favorite ewok that's what i know him from <laughs> Uh, but the, for me, the Leprechaun, I also only knew it from Wayne's World 2 until it started playing on, like, Saturday afternoon TV. Yes. So I remember catching it there, and I'm like, wait, that's Francis from Pee-wee's Big Adventure! And uh, I still didn't know Jennifer Aniston in those early days yet. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was one of those movies where I was like, okay, it's not actually as scary as I thought it would be. It's actually a little bit silly, but obviously the sequels got even sillier. So Yes, they did. So the next movie which dropped the same day is a movie called Alive. And I don't know if you remember this poster. Do you remember the poster for this movie? 
wasn't it just like a white mountaintop, like covered in snow? I thought it was, wasn't there like a mouth pulling out of, oh, it is the, yes, it's like a snowstorm, right? Yeah. You're talking about Dead Alive. You're thinking of the Peter Jackson movie. (laughs) Dead Alive, yes. But Alive, now that I see the poster, yes, it is like three friends trapped in a mountain. I remember this film actually being referenced a lot in pop culture. It's a story of a South American soccer team that crashed and, and then they had to eat each other. They had to resort to cannibalism to survive. That was like the big, can you believe it? Yes, I do remember that part. I guess maybe around here it wasn't very popular because I don't know if cannibalism was like a big thing, but because the poster looks so joyous. <laughs> We stayed alive by eating Raul! <laughs> Different movie. <laughs> I don't know. The 90s were a strange time. What can I say? The next movie dropped on January 15th, and this is Body of Evidence. And I remember the name of this movie. I'm trying to remember who's Ooh, in this. It's getting a little steamy in here with Madonna and Willem Dafoe. That's right. That's what it is. It's Madonna, right? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, th- this was in the vein of, you know, Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. I mean, this this was a sexual thriller. And uh, I obviously had no recollection of this until recently at a local thrift store. Picked it up because I was like, Madonna, in a movie shortly after Dick Tracy. She kind of looks like Breathless Mahoney here. I wonder what this movie is about. Then I watch it, I'm like, oh dear. (laughs) They're they're getting it on in a parking garage on top of a car, and it's just like, what? Like, yeah, so it's 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 like a murder mystery thriller thing, but uh, they covered it recently on How Did This Get Made, so yeah, yeah. not a good movie. This was like also right after she released that sex book, so it's like, it was like between her trying to launch a movie career and... Mm -hmm. Now, the last movie on our list here dropped on January 29th, and that's a movie called Matinee. I feel like Adam has a matinee story. It feels like something that he would he would have. Uh, well, I definitely went to see this in theaters because, of course, I loved John Goodman. We all loved John Goodman, I, I, right? I did, too. Yeah. I, I've had I had many conversations about how much I respect John Goodman as an actor, and I do remember this movie and seeing it in theaters. Yeah, like I saw King Ralph. I did not see The Babe again. Oh. Sports, no. But I mean, this one was just so great because I mean, it's about like that golden age of the fifties of horror cinema where they really like upped the showmanship, you know, because they would actually like put buzzers in the seats or have a person in a giant bug costume run out in the audience and scare everybody. Like it was that like four. D experience and it's just got a, a whole cold war feel to it and everything so yeah i mean joe dante i know he has said that it was a film that he loved making but unfortunately you know it wasn't super well received but it is definitely a cult classic i, I think shout factory just released a blu-ray recently really that's interesting yeah this is like joe dante's version of ed wood except it's william castle renamed it's you can definitely tell he's wearing his heart on his sleeve with this one so we don't have any music this month, which I was surprised by, but we have a rare pop-up on the show here, books. So this is the New York Times bestseller list. January 17th of 1993 is Dolores Claiborne by Stephen King. I can attest I have not read this book, nor have I seen the movie, so I can't speak on it. The next book is The Pelican Brief by John Grisham, which I have seen the movie, and I have not read the book. The next book is The General's Daughter by 
Nelson DeMille. Never heard of that book before. John Travolta has. <laughs> he started the movie. That's true. The Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Waller. I have seen this movie, but I have not read this book. Definitely not. And, oh boy, Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. And I did see Waiting to Exhale as well. Yes, I have seen that. Don't judge me, guys. Don't judge me. It's that a good one, movie. I was just thinking the Simpsons joke, and Homer like has this really philosophical statement he makes. Like, where did you learn that? From the producers of Waiting to Exhale. <laughs> that one's got Angela Bassett in it, right? It sure does. Okay. Not to be confused with Stella got her groove back. I that, was, that was the next one that was coming to mind for me. <laughs> so that is our Wave Riders Wayback Machine for January of 1993. Adam, what do you got in our table of contents? All right. Well, here we are. It's a brand new year, Michael. That's right. January 1993. Although this is actually coming out, you know, in December. So they considered this their Christmas issue, December 92. Now, on the cover is a valiant mashup by Bob Layton and David Lapham uh, featuring Bloodshot and Solar as kind of the main cover icons. They're ripping a wizard hat to shreds with bullets and swords that Bloodshot is wielding. But when you fold it out, you've got Magnus, Exo Manamore, Archer and Armstrong, and then Zephyr from Harbinger flying away in a wizard cloak. Like, everybody's freaking out that Bloodshot is so violently destroying the wizard's cloak. Hopefully poof was not anywhere near it at the time and it's interesting because most issues are valiant heavy but this one is kind of ridiculous i mean this is like they had nothing else to talk about that month because discussion of valiant comics appears in nearly every regular feature so sean did you dip your toe into valiant as you were looking at independent comics publishers I did a little bit, but mainly it was totally just as a tourist. I, I picked up the first issue of Hardcore just because it had a Jim Lee cover, and I, I lucked into getting one that was signed by Jim Lee somehow. I'm not sure how oh. that happened. And it was at the time, too, so I really don't know how that happened. But I never really read any of the Valiant stuff. Um, I was interested, but at the same time, like I didn't have the money for it. It was all it was all Marvel all the time for me, mostly. Well, and it's actually true, too, that uh, Valiant books were a little bit more expensive. So because they weren't producing large print runs, they actually charged more for their books, and they tended to kind of be for older readers as well. But the magazine actually starts with a guest editorial from Valiant executive Steve Mazarski, but it's like it reads like a letter to the stockholders about the future of Valiant's looking bright, though he is sure to mention that he discovered Cindy Lauper, managed the Allman Brothers band, then became the lawyer for Psychedelic Furs, the Whalers, and Aerosmith. Two of those groups actually eventually appear, you know, in illustrated form in Valiant Comics. So the Allman Brothers, for some reason, and Aerosmith <laughs> eventually team up with Shadow Man. So <laughs> look for that later this year. It's a pretty awesome cover, actually. I'll be sure to scan it and share it with everybody, because it's awesome <laughs> but there's also an article titled state of valiant address where steve drops in the story about how they got jim lee to draw the cover of hardcore number one and so this is interesting for you sean we actually had somebody on social media chimed in about this when we were kind of making fun of hardcore uh, but the, the way that they did this was that they got jim lee 
tickets to a U2 concert that was sold out in San Diego. And so they had asked him, like, hey, could you do something for us? He's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm real busy right now. And then he's like, ah, oh, but I really want to go to this U2 concert. And because Steve Mazarski had all these connections to the world of rock and roll, he found some tickets and gave them to Jim Lee. And then Jim Lee's like, ah, oh, man, I want to repay the favor. He's like, no, you don't have to. We just, I just wanted to hook you up. He's like, no, I got to do, some, let me do a cover for you or something. So he said, yeah, we got hardcore number one coming out. Why don't you draw that up? And so that is the story behind that cover. How about that, Sean? <laughs> Bono gave us a lot of things, but he, he gave us inadvertently a Jim Lee <laughs> cover of Valiant Comics. So I guess that's it's definitely giving something. Now, as uh, previously reported, they do briefly mention that Jim Shooter left the company because no one else agreed with where he wanted to take things. So basically it was all against one. They talk about a new artist named Sean Chen, who was discovered at San Diego Comic-Con 92, and he's going to be penciling the new Ray and the Future Force book, as well as news of Joe Quesada and John Ostrander coming on to do some Valiant books. And they promise also that they will never publish more than 20 titles or create gimmick books without quote added value so i thought that was a weird cutoff it's like oh 20 books so it doesn't get out of control it's like mm, okay you think that's the problem at marvel they have too many books <laughs> but they also make mention as far as gimmicks go they're like a real hologram cover would be a big seller as well as working 3d which will appear shortly in the form of valiant vision in a few months so they kind of revolutionized 3d in comic book form finally they mention that in the race of hot new publishers Valiant is the tortoise, and Image is the hare. But that Valiant always gets their books out on time. A little bit of a dig there, you know? So there's also, there's an ad for Comic Fest 93 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where Wizard fans can meet the Wizard spokesmodel Crystal and get a copy of the Comic Fest program produced by wizard which i now i'm gonna have to track down i gotta see if this exists somewhere because technically that counts as an issue of wizard in a way and they will also be presenting the winners of the first annual wizard comic awards selected by the readers yet there's no mention on how you would actually participate in the voting so i don't know how that ever came together and as has been reported by our interviews with wizard staffers on the wizard files very few comic book professionals showed up to accept their awards so <laughs> many wizard staffers ended up with them and was this like the beginning of what would lead to like wizard world and their their like running conventions I like i wonder so. yeah i wonder what the uh the differences between something like comic fest 93 and when the first official wizard world happened yeah i mean it, it seems to be like this is probably them getting very involved in conventions seeing how big a money maker they could be okay we're gonna turn this into part of our business model but speaking of conventions have you gone to very many comics based convention sean oh yeah so i've kind of lived all over when i was in atlanta from around 92 to like 2007 or so i'd uh, attend dragon con every year and it started out very comic heavy and then it kind of morphed into more of like a an ultimate pop culture like everything in pop culture kind of stuff but i've also gone to wizard world in chicago i actually tabled up there with uh brandon in the 80s when i first launched it oh and then i've i've definitely hit a lot of little shows here and there. i've never been to like san diego comic-con or new york comic-con but 
I've definitely hit a lot of the, the smaller shows. Are you there normally for signatures? Are you going to get exclusive merch? Like, what do you go to a convention for? You know, at first, when I was a teenager, a lot of it was getting autographs and stuff like that and meeting a lot of the artists. And Dragon Con was over three, three to four days. So, like, we would get a hotel room with just me and three other guys and, like, literally spend 72 hours going nuts all the time with comic stuff. Who, who is your favorite to run into? I mean, like being in the Atlanta area, we there was a lot of like regulars. Joseph Michael Linzer would show up to Dragon Con a lot. So the guy that did the Dawn comics, Drew Hayes from Poison Elves would show up there a lot. But I, I ran into like Chris Claremont one time in an elevator, which was pretty awesome. I was a pretty big X-Men fan. He was not very nice, but that's, you know, <laughs> whatever. I think my most favorite person I've been at a con is probably Arthur Adams. He is like the nicest guy. He is so giving of his time and just hilarious. But Dragon Con's like in the, in the years that I've been there, I've I've met a good number of comic artists and comic writers and stuff like that. Folks from like John Byrne to Mike Allred and just tons. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now there's also an ad for a new wizard special edition called the hundred most collectible comics. Now I have a copy of this, but I'm just not quite sure how to format a discussion of this issue. I think what it's going to turn into is I may preempt the 2099 hotline and do a mini episode segment about this issue. Cause it's not very thick. So I, I don't think it's something we want to spend a whole episode on but stay tuned for that now the first interview here is called the busiest man in comics it's an interview with fabian nicieza now this is fabian's second interview in wizard because he is writing now the new warriors nomad x-force and x-men so he spends a lot of time dropping storyline points about new warriors which no one but the speedball loving kevin hellions from the house show podcast cares about so we will skip over that but he does talk about the popularity of deadpool and he makes it very clear that rob may have come up with the name and outfit but he created the iconic attitude that readers are responding to you know he's the one who was putting words in deadpool's mouth and uh, many fans he said are surprised that a villain was getting his own miniseries but fabian explained simple he's not a villain he's just a mercenary for hire he doesn't kick kittens you know he's not doing anything like that it's just a job for him so michael sean deadpool fans the movies yeah <laughs> i can honestly tell you there's only been a couple of times when i found I've enjoyed Deadpool in the comics, usually as he's an ensemble character in other people's books. But I can tell you flat out, I have never in my life bought a Deadpool comic book, period. Same here. I'm definitely very aware of the character, and I and I was back to the X-Force days, but I, I never really glommed onto him uh, for some reason. Uh, I've got a good friend named Hoover that's a super huge Deadpool fan, and he even made it into the comics a couple times where the what? artist would draw him. Like, they drew a character in the background that was him, which is it's a pretty awesome thing to get yeah. uh, immortalized in a comic like that. I definitely appreciate him. And I think I appreciate him more after watching the movies, but yeah, from the comic standpoint, not really. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I knew he had some notoriety, but I always thought it came later. So I was surprised to learn that he was as big as he was at this time that they got, you know, everybody was getting excited about Deadpool. So, all right. Now, not my cup of tea either, but also hypes his nomad series, which Fabian was also writing, which he says is, a more grounded book 
about the American experience. He says it's Marvel's book for people who like reading Neil Gaiman's Sandman or Love and Rockets by Jaime Hernandez. I, I have a couple issues of the Nomad series and it is like, I guess more grounded, you know, it's just, it's just like tough guy, grim and gritty action film type stuff is how I feel about it. But it's it's got a little bit of a sense of humor because Fabian's writing it after all. But yeah, it's interesting that he felt like that was his prestige book, you know? He's like, <laughs> I do all these others, but really, Nomad, you know? <laughs> Putting it up there with Sandman, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I felt like it was like a weird take on lone wolf and cub like wasn't there a baby that he was like protecting for a while or something yeah he had a baby that he named bucky because he used to be bucky Bucky, in the 50s and then turns out bucky is getting like tested for hiv in an upcoming issue uh, fabian mentioned so i mean it was just like he was trying to take topical concerns of the time and put them in there you know so it's it's an interesting idea for a book and i think it would be something that could be relevant today if they were to modernize it as a character and and bring the book back because the way our our world and our society are changing. But I don't know. It was not a book that I picked up. It was nothing I was interested in at the time either. You know, it was just sort of there. Yeah, I mean, it always interested me, but I also felt like it didn't connect for me, so I didn't pick it up either back in the day. There was something about that archetype of that character that Marvel was like, like slamming out at that time because that nomad character reminds me a lot of the reintroduction of the Johnny Blaze character mm-hmm. that they bring back at that time and then yeah. I don't know Ravage 2099 felt like it was kind of <laughs> ripping off that whole thing it's like there's there's just like this, this be great, careful guy. be careful be careful Sean Ravage 2099 <laughs> is, a, is a very very hot button issue Adam is a big fan so be careful I, I'm being converted as we speak to Ravage 2099 I've got the pin that Michael gave me yeah if you guys watch that video on social media, I've got my official Vintage Ravage 2099 pin. Now, speaking of controversial, though, Dave Sim, many of us will know him as the creator of Cerebus, and we've talked about him in the past, and these days he's a very controversial figure for um, some misogynistic views on the world. But this article is called The Boy in His Aardvark. Uh, yes, Cerebus is an aardvark. And I actually was just watching the Todd McFarlane documentary on sci-fi you know the hell i won't and getting to issue 300 of spawn was in response to dave sim had the longest running independent comic book ever up to that point so he said he wasn't beating him necessarily but he was at least going to tie him by releasing 300 issues of spawn because dave sim had done 300 issues of cerebus but there are actually some very insightful thoughts here because he mentions that the comics industry has changed rapidly from a space where the quality book you know book is good it sells itself you go to the store what's a good book oh buy this okay to having to be a promoter as well as an artist or writer so he went on a multi-city tour promoting Cerebus for all of 1992 just basically saying hey guys this book still exists. Maybe you haven't heard of it. You should check it out. A lot of people liked it in the 80s, you know. But Sim says that he discovered Wizard during his tour because of the buzz about it. Retailers were telling him that they couldn't keep Wizard on the shelves. Quote, it sells out the first week. We've doubled our order every issue and it still sells out the first day. End quote. So he calls the magazine a, quote, power pocket. It's just basically meaning it's an influential publication. But I was like, wow, that's awesome to hear, like, 
like from the time that Wizard itself was selling out just as much as a number one issue. Now, on Image Comics, he says a lot of people discount their books as garbage because they're different from what the old comics readers have been enjoying, but in his mind, Image is the future. So he says, if a 13-year-old comes into your store, picks something up, and goes, cool, and then flips the pages and goes, way cool... That's a great comic book. <laughs> so he equates Image to Marvel appearing in the 60s as the upstart, where DC was the established publisher of superheroes, and people thinking back then that it was just a fad. But look where they are now. So... Yeah, kind of an interesting, insightful thought process that he had there, in my opinion. During the entire time I was collecting comics, that that's one of the things that was kind of always in the background was Dave Simmons, Erebus. And like he had called out he was going to get to 300 issues like way back at the beginning. I don't know, in the first couple of years of of starting that comic up. And like, I just remember that always being this thing that was kind of like a ticking clock in the background. Just like, when is he going to get to 300? Is that ever going to happen? And now it's kind of crazy to look back and see that like Spawn and Savage Dragon and a bunch of other comics have actually hit that landmark as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, he set the bar, I guess, and they really looked up to him. I mean, he eventually, we're going to have a report on this later, but he gets hooked up with Todd McFarlane as well for some collaboration. So definitely a, a mutual admiration society there. Now, in Palmer's picks, speaking of independent books, you know, we usually gloss over this section, Sean, probably a lot of comics that you read. And so here, Tom Palmer suggests that some current indie books would make great Christmas gifts, including the aforementioned Sarah by Dave Sim, which come in these phone book-sized compilations. Mouse, which is one of those that is definitely, like, I remember in junior high, like, for a book report, you could read the Mouse graphic novel, which I, I didn't. I should have taken my teacher up on that. <laughs> and then Mike Allred's Madman, which we're going to get into a little bit later. And, just like you mentioned there, Sean, Bone by Jeff Smith, which I didn't realize Bone was being published this early, but that's just because I didn't really take notice till it ended up being put out by Image later on, because this must have been his independent days with that book. Yeah, that that was one of those things, too. Like, I never picked up Bone until Image started publishing publishing it but I you know I was aware of it but it was again it was one of those things that was kind of on the fringe but yeah I'm trying to remember I think I think he was pretty far into that series before he got picked up and they started doing the reprints with Image. I've checked out the first collection of Bone from my local library last year. And I read through it and it is it is enjoyable. I mean, the characters are nice. I'm just not a fantasy guy, so I just didn't enjoy the world that it was set in. But it is a very well-done comic. I, I, thought, I can see why it became such a phenomenon. Now, on the other side, maybe, Harris Comics is starting to run ads in Wizard for books called King twister are they dancing fans twist of king <laughs> anyway who look uh, this twister guy he looks like jason todd's red hood i mean he's a guy like in a leather jacket he's got a red kind of helmet mask on i was like huh did they just yank that from this and figured nobody knows who twister is but red hood wasn't didn't exist then that's what i mean so i'm saying did dc Oh, I'm sure they did for red hood <laughs> i'm sure they did are you kidding please 100 no, no, no question <laughs> But also in the mix is Vampirella, who will become a huge icon once the bad girl era kicks in a, a year or two from now. Now, obviously, she existed back in the 70s in these horror magazines, but she had been gone for many, many years at this point. So this is like, I, I'm sure they were counting on Kane or Twister to be their marquee books. Maybe not knowing Vampirella was going to take him into the stratosphere. So we will be covering that soon enough. Now, next up is something that's pretty hilarious 
hilarious. I feel like this is one of the first comedic features that Wizard has put in their magazine, but it's called Batman the Depressed Knight. What they're basically doing is giving Batman some self-help advice. So they pinpointed five issues that he has, and then they try to figure out, what can we do to help Batman? You know, like, problem one, that parent thing. Like, wow, we can't really do anything about that. You know, (laughs) move along, nothing to see here. Problem two is the bat thing. Basically meaning, he needs a kinder, gentler costume. So they try to come up with an idea of how he could change his look, and then he'll just be happier all the time you know um so he says maybe something in a pastel with a big happy face on the front did they not research the 1960s during the silver age of batman <laughs> well that's what i thought too is like yeah he did have a, a peppier costume back then speaking of which is like that what the heck happened to my partner thing so they talk about how robins are always dying or growing up or whatever and then they say he should get a dog yes a bat dog and so i was like they did not know about ace the bat hound like come on problem for that cave thing bottom line basically saying that if you hang out in a dank dark cave all the time of course you're going to be depressed you're going to be angry so they think that he should move his headquarters to disney world (laughs) and he should build it uh, right next to mr toad's wild ride so how about that Problem five, that crime thing. So it's like, well, yeah, if you're fighting crazy criminals all the time, that's frustrating. So they suggest that he start up a restaurant called Bats and Brew or Bat Witches or Batman's Happy Food Palace. (laughs) So some great advice there from Wizard. And again, this is the kind of stuff that we start getting more of going forward. But I just I loved that glimpse into this. Also, we don't talk about Bart Sears' Brutes and Babes column. It's kind of hard to go through drawing lessons on a podcast. But he announces a contest that if you draw a battle-ravaged cable cover concept using his tips from the issue, then the best entries will be published in issue 20 of Wizard, and then the winner is going to get original signed art from Bart. So that's kind of fun that he's like, now I've taught you all these things, put them to use. And also in that vein, in Collecting Comics in the 90s, Pat McCallum is challenging readers to create their own comic book fanzine. He's like, don't make it just a rehash of Wizard. He wants them to use their own unique features and styles, because there was somebody that came up to him at a con that said, look at all these fanzines that I create. So he says the winner will get partially published in Wizard issue 21, and then they win a one-year subscription to Wizard that includes a signed copy of the magazine they appear in by the Wizard staff. So I was like, create your competition? Like, is this where Hero Illustrated came from? (laughs) They're like, hey, we got a pretty good design here. And so with that, Michael, I think it's time you take us into Heroes in Motion. And we start off with Roger Corman's Fantastic Four movie, which is still happening and going to use a T2-style morphing technology. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> Funny enough, I was talking with one of my former professors from undergrad, and he had posted an article about the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. Oh, as it relates to the MCU, and it was like, they should bring the Fantastic Four in, but keep it in the same 
horrible type of motion graphics and effects. And I started watching it on my phone, and I'm about 20 minutes into the movie. So far, it's not as big of a dumpster fire as I had imagined, but I could see why it's, it's iconic as it is for being bad. But I'm, I'm interested to see the rest of it and see why it's so, so bad. But I'm not all the way through it yet. I'd never watched it before. Shot, have you checked it out? I want to, but I'm afraid to. <laughs> well, Steven Sapelis, friend of the show, he has such a, a hardcore connection to it. We are probably going to cover it, Michael, in the future for a special episode. Okay, good. So I better get through it. Good. Yeah, I figured out. He actually sent me a book about the behind the scenes making of it. I've seen the documentary Doomed. There's so much going on there. So we, we won't spill all the beans now, but look out for that. It'll be fun. Moving on. A Watchmen movie script is being not written, rewritten. As we all know, a Watchmen movie did not come out until Zack Snyder did one, you know, almost 20 years later. But, uh, yeah, I, I, again, I can't imagine seeing a Watchmen movie based on the technology in the 90s. They would have had to spend a gazillion dollars to try to even come close to the effects in that movie. And it still probably would have been horrible, to say the least. It probably would have been stop motion, Dr. Manhattan, you know, exploding and coming back together and all those things. Or they would have to somehow tap into a James Cameron, how do you do the T-1000, you know, liquid metal effect? It would blow my mind. If that could be done, then I would be amazed. An animated Nexus movie is being shopped around. Adam, what is Nexus? <laughs> Sean, did you read Nexus as part of your indie comics run? Only the issue that it crosses over with Madman. Yes, and I, I have that as well. But yeah, so Nexus was uh, Steve Rude and Mike Barron. And it was basically uh, about this guy who has this unique cosmic power, but he kind of goes around killing people a lot. Even though he's like a complicated character, getting a, an animated movie, they're like, eh, we don't know where it's going to go, but they're trying to get it done. So it would have been very interesting, because it was a very well-written comic, had awesome characters, awesome art by Steve Rude. Uh, but yeah, it just never came together. Okay, this was a, a little disturbing, if you ask me. A Krusty the Clown live-action series is being considered by the creators of The Simpsons to be debuted on Fox, starring Dan... Who's that last name? I don't even know who Castellaneta. I don't know who that is. He's the guy that does Homer Simpson's voice and Krusty's voice on the show. Oh, okay. Go figure. Can you imagine a live-action Simpsons spinoff series with Krusty the Clown, of all people, being the <laughs> star, being performed by the actor who does the voice on the show? Like, it just... It would have been awesome to see, like, even if they only made a pilot, just to see how they would have brought that into the real world would they have cast like other simpsons characters to be a part of it like it would have been fascinating yeah i think this was actually part of that time in fox's history too where they started debuting weird shows like this and i don't know i, I feel like i could i could totally have seen this coming to fruition i hope that there's a pilot out there I, I would love to know so if any of you uber simpsons fans are aware at least of a script even it'd be cool to see what they had in mind I can't visualize how they would even bring that world to life like that. It would be really fascinating. But Kelsey Grammer could actually play Sideshow Bob. I mean, that would have been awesome. Too bad he was Cheers and Frasier, you know, one after the other at this point. So he would not have been available. But that would have been a, an awesome way to go. The promised Bob TV show set visit appears in this issue. 
Andy Mangles hated the warm-up comedian, making many running jokes at his expense and seemed most excited that the actor who played Kincaid from A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, had a minor role as the member of a comics focus group. Since Mangles was writing a Freddy Krueger prequel comic series for Innovation Comics at the time. Did you ever hear of this show, Sean? Do you remember Bob? I do remember Bob. I didn't watch it, but I always thought it was weird that there was multiple sitcoms that involved comics writers or comics creators like Too Close for Comfort. It's just it's just a weird thing to be a career path. Wait, well, Caroline in the City eventually, she's a cartoonist. Yep, yep. yep. It's, it's such a weird thing, a weird crossover in pop culture. Thing, but there's actually a movie that came out years later um, called American. Sp- no, um, <laughs> American Splendor. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's American Splendor's a, great. Yeah, a great, great film. It's um, Paul Giamatti. I, Paul Giamatti, man. He Harvey Pekar. He's awesome. Did I ever tell you that I ran into him uh, in the Paul city? Paul Giamatti. Yeah, I was walking to work and there was a. A subway accident right actually where my subway station is and i was coming out just moments before it happened and i'm walking down the street and then you see this big accident happen and as i'm walking and i'm like not paying attention to where i'm going i'm looking backwards and i walked right into paul giamatti and <laughs> and like he's staring at the accident too and we're both kind of like what's going on and i turns like oh you're you you're awesome <laughs> he's like yeah thanks he's like filming billions at the time I was like i was like you're cool I, I love you you're great he's like yeah cool dude i was like okay and i just kept walking that was about the whole interaction <laughs> yeah that was my paul giamatti story anyway so this is the third or fourth time mangles has covered this bob sitcom in a wizard publication Mangles wrote about Bob in the Wizard Comic Con Special Edition, which got passed around to the cast and crew during his visit. He reports that someone took a picture of Bob Newhart reading the issue, but it was lost by the studio. Hmm, I wonder why. (laughs) Sure it was. Also in issue four of Mad Dog from Marvel, Andy Mangles writes... A profile of an artist named Paul Power, who designed the Mad Dog character for the show and actually appears as an extra in each episode in the Ace Comics bullpen, usually drawing art for the next episode. Before he got into comics, Paul Power worked with Alex Toth on the Super Friends cartoon and was storyboard artist for films like Mad Max and created Tina Turner's character in Beyond Thunderdome. That's cool. He also worked on Goonies, Pretty in Pink, Top Gun, RoboCop, and Predator. Power even coordinated an episode of the show with cameos by comics legends Jack Kirby and Bob Kane, along with Hot new artists, Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri. Enough of that Bob talk. It's time to talk trading cards. That's right. It's time for Gambit's Deck of Cards.
Now, Sean, I know you have quite a connection to the world of trading cards. Specifically, you love wax packs. You've even created your own designs for movies that never got a trading card series. But you had a very interesting experience with your parents and trading cards that came home. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so like when I was a kid, cards that I was into, whether it was like Garbage Pail Kids or whatever, like if they ever bought me stuff like that, they didn't just bring me the packs. They would open them first for some godforsaken reason. So like they would give me the stacks of the cards or whatever, which was awesome. But I never really had that awesome feeling of like opening up a wax pack or whatever for the most part. It wasn't until I like saved up my own money when I would go up to the 7-Eleven and buy them myself where I felt like it was almost like a contraband type thing. It was the same with toys when I was growing up. Like when Christmas morning happened, like all the action figures were already out of their packages and put together with their guns and everything. So I never really got to see the card backs or rip open the G.I. Joe figures. My parents were weird. Yeah, I know. It's so bizarre. I mean, that is such an interesting perspective and experience. I'm wondering if they were like trying to like sift through them to see if there's stuff like, not, nah, not, nah, we don't approve of that one. No, nope, no. Nope. <laughs> And maybe they were like, maybe there was Garbage Pail Kids I could have had, but they threw them away or something. But then recently, you kind of fulfilled a dream, right? You bought yourself a sealed box of a very special set of cards. Yeah, I, I went ahead and pulled the trigger on a full box of Marvel Cards Series 1. I actually did Series 2. I haven't written about them. But um, oh. so I could have that fun experience of opening up a full box, which is, you know, I could never afford that many Marvel cards at any one time as a kid. And it was it was glorious. I can't imagine. I mean, that that is so exciting. Exciting. I mean, that, that's been my dream for years. Although it'd be redundant because I already have the whole series. Like, I've bought so many packs over the years individually when I've been mm -hmm. in, like, you know, RetroCon or wherever I go. And so I eventually got the whole series. But yeah, it's just like to have the full box. It's exciting. Yeah, it's also just hunting the holograms. <laughs> yes. Now, speaking of which, the Wizard of Cards feature reports that a special insert card in the Death of Superman issue number 75 is anticipated to be a very hot collectible, but that the Chromium Bloodshot card, randomly inserted into issues of Wizard number 15, is selling for 40 to $100 on the secondary market, which is crazy. So now it's a super rare collectible. But on eBay, the these days, it's selling for about two bucks. So, <laughs> did not retain that value, unfortunately. Now, there was apparently also, this one's for you, Michael, a series of Batman Returns trading cards that were exclusive to Australia because they had a different border and they also had like foil stamped chase cards mm. and Gotham City dollars, which I really want to know. Is it like, like an actual prop that was flying down, you know, when Jack Nicholson was throwing them up in the air? Wubba, 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 who do you love? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a bunch of the, I still have a bunch of the Batman Returns cards and I, I'd be curious to see if I could find these these Australian cards. I wonder why they would do that. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't know why they would be available in the States, but they said now they're very hard to find in the States. They're not being imported anymore. I'm like, huh? Because, yeah, if we had seen those, you would have been like, there's a new series! And so also being announced here is In Living Color, yes, the Fox sketch comedy series was getting trading cards. So it was an 88-card series with 11 stickers, which was pretty standard for tops when they produced card sets but just so you guys understand how my brain works so i read this and i said there were in living color trading cards and i looked them up on ebay and then i said could i get 
like a full set for cheap, because really, who wants in living color trading cards besides me? So then I go and I find a listing, and I'm like, oh, it was eight bucks for a full set, it says. And I just buy it, like, immediately. And then I look at it, and it's like, no, 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 no. Eight bucks for the 11 stickers. So you got the full set of 11 stickers. So then I bought the stickers for eight bucks and then I'm like, well, I don't just want the stickers. So then I go down this rabbit hole hunting down lots of packs of In Living Color trading cards. So then I end up dropping like 30 bucks on a card series I didn't really want. But if I have the stickers, I want to have some sort of completism fix fulfilled. And so, yeah, that, I have a problem, guys. <laughs> hey, I would find those cards too. Now I'm going to search for them. I'm interested. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to send some your way, but like I, I did get the stickers in the mail today. We got Homie the Clown, we got Fire Marshal Bill, we got Men on Phil, we got Miss Jenkins, you know, the Mo Money guys, Vera DeMilo, Jim Carrey, and the, even the Fly Girls got their own sticker card, of course. Yeah, I was wondering what the uh, the J-Lo rookie card is worth these days. <laughs> yeah, I bet that's probably worth a good amount of money. Yep, she's front and center. But speaking of the, the big bucks, so there's an ad selling the original Joe Jusco artwork from the Marvel Masterpieces set. So they are offering 104 pieces in a 6-inch by 8-inch size signed by Joe Jusco. I was like, really? Is that how small the original art was? I mean, that's what they're saying it is. I was like, really? 6 by 8? Okay. Uh, but the base price for most of the art is $900. The most expensive is the Hulk, which was, you know, the signature image of the series. And that was like 2500 And then the hologram classic battles art, which were the chase cards, go for $3,000 a piece. So, I mean, I'd be so curious to know anybody out there, if you're listening or you know somebody who picked up some of this original art, but in the listing, interestingly enough, some are already sold. So they have Black Cat and Captain America, Kingpin, Namor, Namorita, and White Queen. Those are already sold. Did you collect the Marvel Masterpieces ever, Sean? Yeah, I definitely picked up a handful of packs of those. I never had a full set, but I had a lot of them. And speaking of the the six inch by eight inch size, that's actually pretty standard for trading card artwork and stuff like that. Like when I've seen uh, Magic the Gathering artists that have brought their original artwork to conventions or um, John Pound's original Garbage Pail Kids, I was kind of taken aback by how small the originals were. I just expected them to be like full size paintings, like something huge you could hang on your wall. But most of them are actually, you know, fairly small. And that, that way they could do a bunch of them, you know, because like with Joe Jusco, he did, you know, he did the whole set. So you got to imagine the time and effort went into to painting all of those. So they had to keep them small to make it so that they could put it out, you know, within a year without having to tie someone up for years doing the artwork. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I've never seen original art like that for trading cards, so that's pretty cool. All right, well, Michael, why don't you take us into Robin Todd's Hype Machine? <laughs> As Adam mentioned earlier, this is the Christmas issue of Wizard, packed in with exclusive trading cards by Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, and Jim Lee. The problem was they randomly inserted only one of three cards into polybags. So to get the full set, you had to buy three copies of Wizard. Retailers and readers were so annoyed by this that Wizard never did it again. Yeah, so the three designs, for those who don't know, there was Santa the Barbarian, 
there was Holly Day, who's basically like a, a Christmas elf Santa girl with a, you know, a bikini on. And then Todd McFarland decided he didn't like the idea of what Wizard was doing, even though he had already agreed to do it. So he decided that he was going to do one that wasn't tied into those exactly. He just did a goofy little Santa cartoony character. He's like, then people won't feel like they have to have all of them. Interesting. Todd is bringing in a slew of amazing comics writers to Spawn for the next few issues, including Alan Moore with issue number eight that tells the origin of the Hell Spawn costume. Then Dave Sim, Neil Gaiman, and Frank Miller, which I don't know if you guys have picked up Spawn 300. Almost all of them came back to write or tell something in the Spawn 300 issue. That was one of the things that he tried really hard to do. Is like He even got Scott Snyder to come in, and Greg Capullo, and a bunch of people came and did different segments for the Spawn 300 issue. Anybody that ever was involved with Spawn over the entire run, if you didn't know that. So Rob is name-checked in the Magic Words section by a reader who challenges the belief that New Mutants 87 is the first appearance of of cable claiming that marvel age number 82 had a rob liefeld new mutant sketchbook feature that contained the first concept sketch of cybrid it's like a hybrid cybernetic so i'm gonna call it so it's cybrid sure who became cable and other new mutants and later young blood characters but wizard responds that while on a technicality it might be true, it really isn't considered first appearance, so don't expect any price upheavals in the book. Oh, I'm going to shake my fist. This is where it really appeared. (laughs) I don't know. It's really weird. This issue, Rob is mentioned five times, and Todd is mentioned four times, for a total now of Rob... Hitting the 100 mark. Hey now. Ring your cowbell. And Todd is at 92. So Rob still reigns supreme and he's holding strong. It's pretty crazy that he's been mentioned 100 times in 17 issues. And what's even more amazing is that Adam continues to grace all of you with his ability to count and do math and so (laughs) fantastic and folks that is our robin todd's hype machine for issue number 17 of wizard all right yeah we definitely got to throw that to rob and let him know get his reaction on social media so let us know he's already commented once before on the tally so now that he knows he's beaten todd when todd's getting all the attention these days with his documentaries i'm sure he'll be excited to celebrate that but now it's time to take a look at punisher's price guide And uh, in the Comics Watch section, 
they are highlighting Solar Man of the Atom number three, which Wizard claims is going to become a big deal at this time, not only due to the calculated low print runs of Valiant books, which were designed to make their comics collectible, but also the fact that this is the first appearance of Toyo Harada, who is the major force of evil in the Valiant universe, you know? So I think they describe him as like the Doctor Doom of Valiant comics, but he's basically just like this corporate mastermind who has these like psychic abilities, or he's kind of telekinetic is more than he is psychic. So yeah, the question is, Toyo Harada, does he make a book collectible? Well, in 1993, the book was already listed at $15. Nowadays, the 2020 price is around $30, and a graded copy sells for $125. So, Toyo Harada, congratulations, you are a Firestar. So, you know who I've always thought Firestar should get together with? My pal, the Human Torch. I heard his original catchphrase was, Feel the burn, burn! And I think they should have gone with it, because it, to me, it feels like it could resonate more. Feel the... Ah! Sweet Sue Storm, Michael's been carried away to the Baxter building by the Human Torch, where I can only assume he'll be relegated to the negative zone till he learns to respect old Matchhead's signature phrase. Should, uh, should someone call his wife? Yeah, I'm sure this isn't the first time he's ticked off an iconic superhero. Besides, we got a show to do here, Sean. So now it's time to get into Robin's Reading Rainbow. So this month's hot books include Venom Lethal Protector number one, which is touted as, quote, the hottest issue of the year, and Punisher 2099 number one, which I will be covering in the mini episode. Also arriving this month is Batman Seduction of the Gun number one, where Batman and Robin go undercover to stop the flow of guns to Gotham's youths, which this is weird because Punisher just did this over at Marvel in his back to school special like a month or two prior. (laughs) We talked about that. (laughs) So it must have been in the news or something, just real topical. Also, Peter David's Hulk Future Imperfect, featuring the introduction of The Maestro, along with a little indie book called Madman Adventures Number 1. So, Mike Allred originally created the character of Frank Einstein as an insecure psychic in the pages of an indie anthology comic he was publishing called Graphic Music, and then he gave the character a costume in the pages of the first black-and-white Madman series, which became known in the collected edition as the Oddity Odyssey. So then at that point, Allred had been picked up by Kevin Eastman's Tundra imprint to publish Madman Adventures number one in full color. So that's what we're talking about today. But you kind of alluded to it earlier in your recommendations from the comic book shop that you used to buy from. But how did you find Madman? I think I stumbled across Mad Men. I think it was the Dark Horse years when a bunch of creators, like, I don't know if this happened in response to Image, but Dark Horse basically gave a bunch of artists, like, free license to do kind of whatever they wanted under the Legend imprint, I think it was. So you had uh, creators like Arthur Adams doing Monkey Man and O'Brien, and that's when Frank Miller started up Sin City, 
and Mike Mignola started up Hellboy and John Byrne had, had Next Men. Mm-hmm. So I think I was kind of the, like all those releases were on my radar. And as soon as I saw the cover to Madman number one, where he's like shooting the little disc gun, it just seemed like it. this is something that I would be super interested in. I was already a big fan of The Tick. Uh, by that point so like superhero comics that had like a comedic bent to it or something you know silly or weird just kind of spoke to me so i'm pretty sure i picked up that first issue and then fell in love and then it was a matter of backtracking and figuring out like okay you know what what else is there out there most of what i picked up was in trade form like the oddity odyssey and um the madman adventures trade i i didn't get my hands on any of the tundra issues or the kitchen sink press stuff that he did or any of the the original stuff he did under his his indie books but i know from like going forward i definitely picked up the the full dark horse run and then anything mike allred touched after that i I picked up or at least tried to yeah i mean he is just a a very special creator artist he really brings a, a sense of wonder and fun to his books and i originally discovered madman through issue number 10 of the dark horse series because it had a painted cover by alex ross mm. uh, so i still have that book and i remember reading it and i'm just like i'm in the middle like of a big storyline i don't know all these characters and what's going on but this art is beautiful it's just got kind of a quirky but yet dramatic tone to it this where he's fighting this evil robot and all this stuff trying to save his girlfriend but what was cool was that particular cover they actually produced a giant poster like a three-sheet old movie style poster it's like eight feet tall like it's gigantic and i was able to pick up a copy like 15 years ago like early days of ebay when i was really getting into it and i found it i was like and i've had it forever and i've never had a house big enough where i could actually mount it and display it because it's so gigantic and my wife doesn't want it in the living room you know so (laughs) i i have that same problem i have some original one sheets of the monster squad um a movie i love and you know like gremlins and stuff like that and they're so big like i don't even i don't even know how to frame them i don't yeah like I did all this research of like I called up like this framing company you know it, it would cost like three or four hundred dollars to get it properly mm-hmm. framed and mounted and everything but I was just like man it'll be worth it someday uh, but <laughs> what's actually very fun about that too is I uh, I did this article for the Retro Network a couple months back about all the real life comic books in episodes of the Big Bad Beetleborgs TV series <laughs> and in the background of one of them is that poster mounted on their wall I was like this is awesome I can't believe it, you know, so I've I've seen what it could look like, but I'm like you, Sean, like as soon as I picked up that issue, I went and bought all the original trade collections from my local comic book shop. I had those for years, but then I bought the hardcover Madman Gargantua collection, which is like this really like large format, beautiful presentation, and then I sold them to a used bookstore, and I was like, man, I should have just kept out of those. They're much easier to read, you know, than than a giant collected edition. I I love the huge trades, but you're right, like... I have the huge bone uh, trade and it's it weighs like 30 pounds and it's it's unwieldy and hard to read. Yeah, like you have to have an easy chair to sit in and like, you know, some sort of podium to set it on. <laughs> exactly. But like from there, yeah, like like you said, anything you touch. So I was buying all the Atomics. I love mm-hmm. that series. Just a great team book. Even like when they crossed over with Savage Dragon, I bought those Savage Dragon issues. Every issue of like the relaunch Madman Atomic comics, you know, Red Rocket 7, Action 
action figures. They got this prototype wall clock that never went into production. And then all throughout college, I was pretty much always wearing one of two Madman t-shirts. So I had one that was just the white with the red insignia, and I had one that was black with yellow. And like if nice. you look at all those pictures from my college years, I'm always wearing one of those shirts. <laughs> and then recently, I even backed the Kickstarter for the documentary about Mike Allred's life and work, because I just, I want more. I want to see yeah. more. I want to understand it. He's one of those really weird and interesting kind of quirky comic creators that like his roots like they don't necessarily speak to where he ended up like he was on tv i think he was a weatherman for for a yeah, period he did journalism like yeah something <laughs> and he's like really good looking like he's he's got like i don't know he, he does not fit the profile of like your typical comic book creator it's like some people have you know, a couple things here or there, like that, you know, maybe they, they're dangerous at, at like four or five different things. They can maybe draw or they can maybe play a little bit of music or they can maybe act a little bit or whatever. I feel like he's got the gamut covered way too well. I mean, between his band, The Gear, which I actually really dig, and the artwork, you know, he managed to have his own style. It's like you said, it's it's quirky and interesting, but it's it's dramatic and also weird. It it strikes this balance between very precise line work, especially in some of his later stuff. Yet at the same time, it has this cartoony oddness to it, but it's very distinct. You can always tell a Mike Allred piece. And typically, like someone that's really good at like one of those things is not all over the place with, you know, really good work. But yeah, it makes me mad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's so cool. I mean, I know both you and I have met him at conventions, usually with his wife, Laura. Was Laura there <laughs> when you... Yeah, I got to meet yeah. him. Yeah, and I mean, they're just like so cute and so nice. It's it's pretty exciting. Yeah, to think there's such a nice guy in comics out there. And when you talk to anybody, like everybody seems to love him. You know, there's there's no criticism of Mike Allred from any corner of the comics community. And I I know I originally originally was introduced to the concept of Madman just by seeing you know things in Wizard that would pop up here and there, and they'd talk about Mike Allred. And he's got this comic, you know. But it took me a few years to catch up with him, and then I was so glad that I did but especially this issue like the oddity odyssey is a very weird book because it's all black and white it gets really violent in some places mm -hmm. like people get their eyes ripped out or it, it's got this innocence and then like this childlike you know version of violence to it and then it then, like quirky funny stuff plus it's got like a, a very 50s sci-fi movie vibe to it mm -hmm. overall and then you get to madman adventures number one and and now it's in full color and it does almost take on a different spirit, I guess you would say. Like, it's still similar and they've set everything up in that original three issue run i think it was but now you've got this like beautiful like colorful world he's got his girlfriend joe that's what always happens like when people come up to me and they say like oh you read comics who's your favorite comic book character so i always say well growing up it was spider-man because everybody knows who spider-man is and i'm like but for the last 20 years it's been madman and then i give them the elevator pitch and it basically just goes he's a reanimated corpse who was brought to life by these scientists who sent him on adventures but really all he ever wants to do is hang out with his girlfriend people are like oh <laughs> and it's like if without the visuals it's kooky in the, in the description but like when you see the art matched with that concept it's just you have how could you not get sucked into that world the other thing is i think for those who haven't read madman comics you know like michael uh <laughs> 
not here for us to enlighten him. When you would describe to somebody, okay, well, he's a superhero, what, right? So what are his powers? How would you describe Madman or Frank Einstein's power set? He's kind of got the powers of the Stephen King Walken, book. Yeah, yes. The dead zone. <laughs> the dead zone, right? He's, he, when he touches people, he can kind of see some of the evil that they've done or the evil that they intend to do. So he's kind of got kind of like a psychic thing going on or or uh, telepathy but at the same time there's just like a general nimble agile like almost a com- the man without fear daredevil type thing going on where he's kind of you know like he'll jump off the edge of a building he'll hang on a rope and do crazy things he's got pretty good aim with a yo-yo or <laughs> his trusty slingshot so you know it's like it's a little bit of long shot it's a little bit of daredevil it's a little bit of again yeah christopher walken's character is it johnny something from uh, the dead zone and i wouldn't even know how to completely encapsulate that yeah i mean you're basically right i mean he's got all these innate abilities because he doesn't know who he is from his life before so Mm -hmm. he's definitely just in like this state of you know always seeking to know the truth until later issues but yeah it it, it is funny that you know his weapon of choice is a yo-yo in the early days i really love the iconography that he works into into his stuff there's this mix of like the the visuals from like the church of the subgenius like the 50s father with the you know the pipe (laughs) and the you know the glasses and you know wearing the sweater vest and everything like stuff like that pops up a lot he also he, he has a lot of like 50s and 60s vibe to his work with like beatniks and usually crazy mutant beatniks but still but then he's also like heavily influenced by 70s glam Mm-hmm. Um, David Bowie, Lou Reed, you know, that stuff makes its way into his work a lot. But he's also kind of got like a 50s pinup kind of vibe going on, almost like kind of the stuff with the Rocketeer, like with Joe, the girlfriend and everything. She's She's got a very girl next door yet kind of trying to think of like a specific actress to kind of relate her to but it's it's I'm like almost like i mean she's kind of like a mix between i feel like jillian anderson from the x-files but then she's got a little bit more you know of the sweetness meg ryan or something like mm-hmm. that you know she's kind of somewhere in between but you know he he draws her with that kind of like not quite like a bombshell body it's a little bit more subdued than that but mm-hmm. there's there's definitely a lot of instances where she's kind of like in her her undergarments or whatnot and it's 50s style pinup things going on so I I don't know. There's just this weird mix of visuals that that I really dig. And I think it was Alan Moore. I think I read a, a pull quote once from Alan Moore that said something like he's mixing Twin Peaks and uh, Frank Capra or something like that, which which <laughs> is very apt description. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this first issue, if you were expecting, you know, an actual adventure, <laughs> it's called Bad Man Adventure, the adventure doesn't really begin in this issue. Because yeah. this whole story is literally, you know, he stops a beatniks from mugging a lady in the park, you know, but other than that, he is going to meet up with Joe, like, they're gonna have a date planned, he's so excited to see her, so they, they go up kind of this lookout point, you know, makeout hill, if you will, and... Joe asks Frank if he's going to kiss her, you know, and he's all like kind of flustered, you know, he he doesn't know what to say. And it is almost word for word a conversation my wife and I had when we were dating. And so like that panel is such like a personal moment for me. And like it endears me to the characters all the more. And so, you know, then she just kind of attacks him and lays one on him, you know, and he's like, oh, and he's, and then he's just like, I'm king of the world. And he's jumping around the city and he's 
just like, you know, it brings you back to the early days of, of romance in your life, you know. Mm-hmm. Although I, I would say that, you know, Frank himself as a character is, he's lost in the world, he's, he's introspective. The other characters kind of suffer from not being developed because it, it really is all about him. So like even Joe, she's like the sweetest, most supportive, awesome. I mean, she has opinions and things, but at the same time, you kind of see, okay, well, she's always the girlfriend, you know, she's always like the girl by his side supporting him or the damsel in distress. So she does fall into that, but it works in the storytelling, which like you're saying is that throwback style because he's got Dr. Flem, who's kind of like the main scientist that he deals with, who mm. is, is always sending him on adventures. Like at the very end of this issue he's being basically commandeered uh, he's like we're gonna we're gonna take over your life for a minute frank you owe me your <laughs> life so i'm gonna send you on a trip through history i've created a time machine and i want to document history it should only take three days i think he says <laughs> and like frank's like but i got a date with joe tonight you know he's like don't worry i'll be able to put you back in time right before and you'll make it to your date he's like all right well <laughs> then they open up this portal they fly through it but there's all these you of mishaps because for some reason they have to take a pill that knocks them out which I, don't, I never understood that part but because of it like he doesn't quite get secured into his seatbelt and then he falls out of the time machine and ends up in prehistoric times and that's where the next issue you know picks up yeah. uh, and then the adventure really begins but it's, it's just funny because that's kind of how it always works you know there's this woman that he rescued from some mutants underground and her name was bonnie and so she just kind of stays around as, as a love interest ultimately to dr fleb but kind of a lab assistant she just hangs out with them and then there's a woman named gail who's all wrapped up in bandages like the invisible man and she actually turns invisible because was she attacked by the beatniks as well that that tattooed her face yeah they, did that? they tattooed the universe all over her and so she she would develop this serum that she had soaked her bandages in that would hopefully remove the tattoos. And instead, it just removes everything. <laughs> yeah, it's her invisible. Again, this is something that I love about this stuff, too, is the quirky, like, 50s sort of sci-fi or old universal monster kind of influence that, that ekes its way into. There's a there's a lot of monsters. There's a lot of... And again, like, in that, that first trade, there's a lot of weird violence, like you said, that... But, but it's like, it fits in the world, but at the same time, it, it gets toned down as the series goes on, and it's just a great mix. Yeah, I mean, it really, like, going forward, they do a lot more with, like, aliens and space travel and stuff like that. But the best part, like, overall, if you read, like, all of Mike Allred's books in this kind of Snap City universe, is that there's street beatniks that get mutated, but then ultimately their mutation takes the form of giving them superpowers. They're the ones who turn into the Atomics. So mm. now they're a superhero team. Like there's just there's a lot of cool stuff that he keeps his continuity throughout. And so it's it's very, very fun to to dig in because you're like, oh yeah, then I remember when that happened, I remember when this happened, and now they're <laughs> all together for some reason. That's crazy. So, you know, I, it's always a wonder. It's like, was he planting the seeds back then, or did he actually just say, Hey, you know, I could probably do something with this now. But either way, it's it's always a delight. But I, I had a question for you, Shada. You know, outside of what you described, you know, one of Frank's main 
main attributes is his insecurity. And it feels a little different than, say, like Peter Parker insecurity. That his struggle is his looks, because he literally has like a metal plate, you know, on his forehead and scars and his skin is blue. That he wears the costume, they say, because it gave him confidence. And mm. so after he was reborn, he was reanimated by Dr. Flem and Dr. Boyford, they brought him back to a state of some understanding of the world because he was basically born as like a little child again they had to teach him but for me you know you and i have both written about this growing up as you know fat kids always struggling with body issues and having that concern like i feel a real kinship with frank in that way as well like the fact that he can't believe that joe would like him you know he can't believe that he's able to do all the things that he does because he's always again looking at himself it's like i don't know mm. who i am it's so difficult to exist in the world and those types of things like do you get into it on that level when you're reading as well totally i i totally relate to the character on that level and it's it's already drawing from the early days of you know like marvel comics and how those characters reacted to the world that they were in and how they had a lot more insecurities and they weren't just this force of nature you know the innocence and the not sure of what's going on or, or what he can do yet at the same time being kind of like a daredevil who just kind of jumps in you know regardless of you know he did, if i'm gonna fail i'm gonna fail but he's still you know it's like there's so many instances in this comic series where he's like purged at the edge of a cliff or something like that and he's like he's not sure what to do but then he just kind of takes a leap of faith and jumps but that kind of I, I definitely react to very much it's it's like if you ever stop and think of like if i were going to be a superhero or if i were going to be having adventures and stuff like that like you know what would my interior monologue be and a lot of times it aligns completely with what's you know in these madman comics yeah, and I, I will tell you that I actually took it a step further at one point in that I don't do a whole lot of cosplay. I would like to do more. But when I was living in Brazil, I met up with a seamstress and then I had a friend who did screen printing on t-shirts. And, you know, like I said, like the, the, this is kind of just right after my college days. I was super into Madman wearing my shirts all the time. And I just said, you know what? I want to be Madman for Halloween this year, you know? And so I knew what they could do. So, like, we planned together. I brought in, like, the comics for them to look at. They made me a full-on Madman costume. Wow. And it was beautiful, you know, how, you know, the, the top was cut out for the hair, but it was all one piece, so it just kind of zipped up in the back, and it, like I said, just tailored to my dimensions. I wouldn't fit in it these days. <laughs> but I was so excited, you know, we worked on it for, like, a, a week, getting it all perfect. And then, for some reason, I didn't take a picture of it. I didn't, I didn't think, to, I got a document how awesome this is you know and when i got back to the states somehow it didn't make it into my suitcase oh no and i was just like i have no idea like packed up everything how could it not be in there and i just like looked through the right suitcase over and over again where is it where is it and it was gone and i was so bummed because i was like this is like the most beautiful thing you know when i met mike and laura at the phoenix comic con i would have worn it mm -hmm. you know and it just never never got to do that again because you know i don't think i could afford it here but you know the, the dollar's a little bit stronger in brazil plus they were yeah. my friends so they were hooking me up you know so but i was just like man if only if i at least had one picture yeah i mean that that's the kind of thing that you would be willing to invest in a mannequin for so that you could at least have it like exactly a life-size madman in your uh 
your office. So if you have not read any Madman comics, we can't recommend enough that you check this out. And this is actually a great issue to start with. It's on Comixology. If you have an unlimited account, you can actually read this first trade, this collection of Madman adventures. Otherwise, it's not that expensive just to buy it. But you will definitely get a lot of fun out of it. It is a kick. And as an added bonus, I will tell you, as obsessed as I got, I eventually wrote a song about Frank and Joe's relationship called Snap City Love Song. I only ever recorded like a very wonky kind of, you know, basic demo. So I I will put that at the end of the episode for those who want to adore it. But it's one of those things where it's just like, it's one of the songs I love best. I wrote a song about Reed Richards, you know, singing to Sue Storm, doing a love ballad for her. I wrote this one about Frank and Joe. And then I even wrote a song about Resurrection Man, this old 90s DC comic. So I was very inspired in my early days when I picked up a guitar. I'm just going to write about what I know comics <laughs> it sounds like a, a an ep needs to come out yes one of these days this has been so awesome sean thank you for being a part of the show i mean it's i i don't get to talk to too many people about madman so especially to to have our grand finale here it was a real trip this was awesome i'm so glad to have finally been on it and uh, it was it was just a great conversation all around so if people want to connect with you going forward and see all the fun stuff you're up to where can they find you uh easiest place is branded in the 80s.com 80s they can find links to my Instagram, my Twitter, my all that kind of stuff if you're wanting chat with me or whatnot but uh, there's over a thousand i think articles up there about all kinds of goofy 80s stuff that i love or if you're uh, more inclined to the audio portion you can look up branded in the 80s on any podcatcher and find my podcast there or coldfilmclaw.com or on a podcatcher all right well awesome so with that i will also remind you guys that our next episode we're going to preempt the issue 18 discussion and our next full episode is actually going to be covering the death of Superman special and we are going to have Mickey from the Retro Network joining us. It's his favorite 90s comic book story and so he's been waiting for a long time for his chance to come in and join us and talk about it. So we're looking forward to share that with you. Of course, find us at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram and as we remind you, we have our own feed now so you don't have to stay only subscribed to the Retro Network feed, though we do recommend that. If you're just here for wizards you can find that on all your favorite apps for podcasts and until next time keep your books bagged and boarded gonna tell you a story about frank and joe yeah two tanking cheek kids from snap city now Joe is your sweet average girlfriend next door And Frankie's a reanimated corpse The rest of the world can't seem to understand The feeling she gets when she's holding his hand Frank loves Julie She doesn't care if they call him a madman Frank loves Julie Come to her rescue when she's in a jam Frank loves Joanne They've taken to the skies now And who knows just where they'll land He's got 
got no path, but Joe's all that he needs. Together they're writing the story. Now mutant street beatniks are spoiling their fun. So Frank on with no yo knocks out each one. They go out for Chinese, Joe's dressed in her best. So sassy, so fine in her polka dot trip. Frank loves to Take it to the skies now, and who knows just where they'll land. Again, a trip back in time is Frank's new mission. Joe's happy with what she's got, you can tell by her tone. A Frankenstein boyfriend to call her own. Everybody now! Frank loves to She doesn't care if they call him a madman. Frank loves to win, comes to her rescue when she's in a jam, Frank loves to win. They're taking you the skies now and who knows just where they'll land. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.